Hello and welcome to the Watt and Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and we have two guests today, TXO and Gabriela Brunardello, the general partner and the vice president at Vika Ventures. TX has been involved with startups since his college days, where he started and sold an online textbook marketplace. After a stint at McKinsey, he came back to his roots and served as a CFO for an electric vehicle startup. In 2012, he co-founded Carlin Ventures, where he served as the managing partner for four years before co-founding Fika Ventures. TX holds an MBA from Stanford University. Gabriella began her career at EY Parthenon, and after three years in consulting, she transitioned to a venture role at Wonderco, a consumer technology holding company, before joining Fika Ventures. She is also involved in fundraising and operations for Mikasa de Angles. a non-profit she founded in 2009. Gabriela holds a bachelor's in symbolic systems from Stanford University. Join me as we explore what sets up Fika apart from other seed funds, what it takes to be an effective investor, some interesting startups that Fika has backed, and what sectors that TX and Gabriela think will drive the growth of fintech. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey TX, hey Gabriela, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both? We're doing very well, Tarang. Are you both calling in from LA? Yep. Yes, yeah. we are. So TX was telling me it's it's still sunny but kind of getting cold over there. Do you agree, Gabriela, with that? Yeah, no, I went for a walk this morning and I had to wear two sweatshirts. <laughs> <laughs> it's my weak Southern California blood. Okay, yeah, when, when right. we say it's cold, it's actually still in the 60s. So for <laughs> you guys, East Coast is actually pretty warm. We, I think we just got too used to the warm weather here. I mean, one of the best things about the West Coast is the weather, right? Yes, for sure. Awesome. Diving right in. This question is for both of you. For our listeners who may not know, right, could you explain or elaborate a bit about your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, so maybe I'll start and Gabriella can chime in later. So um, I, I think for myself, I was an accidental entrepreneur to begin with. As I started a company in college when my family needed help with finances, I was an online textbook marketplace. This is all the way back in the early 2000s that we scaled to more than 10 million in revenue with a team of just under 30 people. It ended up being one of the best experiences of my life running the company, and we ended up having a good exit. in 2006 but it was a bootstrap company and i was never exposed to the world of venture capital so i think when we sold the company and i learned about what venture capital was i thought it was a good way for me to engage with early stage founders in my shoes and offer them what i didn't have when i was running my own company so that's kind of the genesis of how i got excited about venture capital and i i guess as it relates to fintech investing i i wanted to Pick an industry that I knew well, and combining my startup experience with my time at McKinsey's financial services practice, getting involved in fintech investing felt like a natural choice. Uh, over the years, I've been very fortunate to be involved with several companies like SoFi, Policy Genius, Pipe and Papaya, among others, and been able to vicariously deepen my knowledge of fintech through watching these companies scale. Yeah, so I, th- I think for me. Um... I've had a, a little bit of a, of, a, of a different path towards s- similar to TX. I think overlapping, we both kind of started in the consulting world, um, but maybe uh, a little a little bit of a different path. So I, I think I started my kind of official or my my career actually pre college. Um, so I founded a nonprofit called Nikasa de Angeles, 
uh, with the purpose of raising money to support educational projects in my dad's home country, Peru. Um, and I think um, that was really where I discovered my desire to kind of find solutions to problems. Um, I've always kind of been a fixer. I love puzzles, things like that. And I think also um, it gave me a little bit of an, a glimpse of the understanding of being a founder. Albeit we're a very uh, small scale nonprofit, I think it has allowed me to kind of better understand that journey that a founder takes. Um, and that has really informed how I interact with the founders that I meet every day and the ones that we support in our portfolio company. And I think it also made me realize, because um, I started that in high school, that when I went to college and after college, I kind of wanted to get an experience that allowed me to have a lot more breadth where I would be focusing on seeing a bunch of different companies, looking at a bunch of different verticals and sectors and business models. And that would allow me to find you know, that category that I was passionate about. So after graduation, I started as a consultant at Parthenon. Uh, I worked in the private equity practice. In three years, I did 40-something cases. So I really got that uh, quantity um, that I wanted to. Uh, and then I think after being in client services for three years, I realized I wanted to move to the other side of the table and actually be on the investor side. So I first joined uh, Wonderco, which is a multi-stage fund based here in LA, focused on mostly consumer technology. Um, and I think when I was there, I realized it was actually the early stage, the seed and pre-seed uh, that I was most excited about. And I would come off these calls uh, with pre-seed and seed founders, just so kind of amped up about what they were doing and the opportunity to kind of join founders at the very, very beginning of their journey. And so uh, about a year and a half ago, I joined Fika and now spend pretty much 95% of my time focused on fintech, as well as a bit of prop tech and construction tech. Both quite fascinating paths to uh, VC, right? But TX specifically for you, you went from having your own startup in college to working at McKinsey, then joining an EV startup, finally to investing. It's a very diverse set of roles that you did. <laughs> Do you think the skill sets that you build over there are helping you as an investor? Yeah, definitely. And I, I love to say I planned my whole career out, but it's largely circumstantial if I were to be completely honest. I think as mentioned earlier, my dad passed away unexpectedly in college and I had to quickly find a way to support my family. So the idea of selling textbooks online was one that I latched onto quickly and it was a very profitable business. Um, so I decided to kind of leverage that idea to start a company. And as I was running the company, an advisor I had was a gentleman by the name of Ron Daniels, who ran McKinsey globally in the 90s. Um, he recognized how little I knew about the business world despite running my own company and encouraged me to join McKinsey after selling my company. Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't go through the usual recruiting processes, so didn't know, quite know what McKinsey was at that point in time. But saw it as a way to have an extended vacation in Europe as that was the office I was part of. Um, and I, I know the story goes on, but I don't want to bore all of you listeners with the play-by-play. -play, but the rest of my career kind of followed the same path, where I was fortunate to meet Eric Schmidt's family office during my first few months in business school. Then towards graduation, connected with another family office, the Carlin family, that wanted to start a venture investing platform and brought me on to lead a $30 million fund. So I, I guess the reason of of explaining all these experiences is that the biggest skill I've learned through my career is being open-minded about where the next opportunity might come from. But if you feel is the right one, don't be afraid to take the leap. And if it's a wrong one, don't be afraid to course correct. 
Um, the other big skill that I think I've picked up is um, I've worked at a corporate and also been a startup founder. So one of my core skills these days is helping some of my early stage founders bridge the gap, whether it's being able to understand how to close contracts with large companies or building a company and managing employees as a first-time founder. So I, I think that flexibility of skills has really allowed me to uh, excel in what I do today. My next question is for Gabriella and on similar lines, right? So you mentioned that you have been an active part of social impact, especially in Peru. Do you believe that this passion has influenced you as an investor and how you interact with potential portfolio companies? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, th- I think I touched on this uh, a bit, but obviously being a founder of a small nonprofit is very, very, very different um, than being a founder of a venture scale business. But I think what I can relate to is that... Um, that drive that you get when you want to kind of run as hard as possible at something, um, at solving a problem and bringing together that community of people around you, whether it's partners or investors or just teammates or employees um, to join you on that kind of journey and mission. And so I, I think having been through part of that journey in starting Mikasa Angeles, I, I think I relate to that. Um, and I see that in a lot of our founders. And I think that allows me to be a better partner for our portfolio companies. And, and I think I, I try to almost embody their mission as my own. I, I think I'm, in terms of how I think about investing and, and you know, touching social impact through my day-to-day job, I think I'm naturally drawn to you know, causes that touch education or, or, co- or uh, companies that have a uh, social impact component. Um, so for example, in the, in the context of fintech, I've actually spent quite a bit of time looking at the credit building and subprime lending space. And I think me and then also, you know, the rest of the team feels like there's an opportunity to better serve this low or no credit score community. Um, And so we've actually, in fact, there was actually a company we recently looked at and we spent time with um, who's targeting, you know, immigrants who have no credit score and figuring out ways to help them build out their credit score and access better financial products that more adequately, you know, serve their needs and I think that really resonated with me because I'm I'm the child of two immigrants, and I think that definitely was a struggle that my parents had coming to this country. So, my next question is about Fika. Could you give like a one paragraph about what Fika is and what's the philosophy? Yeah. So, um, as as you can tell, um, unfortunately the video is not on, but we're all Swedish. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's that's actually a joke. But. I think the the reason we picked the name Fika, it's it's a community activity in Sweden that's done in the afternoons where people gather over coffee for the large part to talk about things that are top of mind for them, to share ideas and to collaborate. And this is kind of what we do a lot with our founders and entrepreneurs today. So I think that's where the genesis of the name came from and something that we try to embody and practice on a day-to-day basis. One more thing I noticed when I was reading the manifesto is that you shy away from backing what is popular or obvious. What does this mean and where does this stem from? Yeah, we we came up with this manifesto actually to remind ourselves internally of our North Stars. We we tend to fall prey to groupthink at times. It's very easy as a venture capitalist to rely on social proof and invest in companies that are popular and also question yourself when every other investor is passing on an investment. So to answer your question on where this belief comes from, 
we recognize that a large number of great founders will still come from central casting. And what we mean by central casting is that they went to the top schools or worked at one of the largest tech companies. But there's also a huge number of amazing founders that might not necessarily check these boxes. So to us, what's more important than a resume is the founder market fit, that as a founder, you spend enough time in an industry or tackling a problem that you have a differentiated perspective and approach. We also try to seek out founders who we call visionary pragmatists, one who can define a bold vision, but at the same time have the tenacity and operational chops to execute and prioritize well on a day-to-day basis. So I guess to summarize, I think this is really opening our aperture on where successful founders come from and not to limit ourselves to a certain pool or typecast of founders. My following question would be, it's two parts actually. First one is, how does FICA select and scout and select the right people and the right idea? And are there certain verticals within uh, fintech that you focus more on than the others? I can jump in and take this one. So, I mean, I, I definitely think that fintech is one of our, our biggest categories. Um, and so we've definitely had a lot of reps in refining that process for identifying um, the teams and the ideas that we want to we back and we want to get most excited about. Um, so, I mean... I, I think it's it's a lot of it is spending a lot of we like to spend a lot of time with the teams um, that we're the founders that we want to back and get to know them and really intimately understand the nuances of of their idea the business model the kind of market size I think um, honestly sometimes it it ends up being kind of a, a gut reaction that you feel um, you know this is this is the right team that you're drawn to that you want to back but. I think there's also, we, we do spend a lot of time researching particular categories and kind of building our perspectives and theses around those categories. Um, and there are, are categories we track. So we ultimately end up kind of trying to look for something uh, that we want to invest in in those particular categories. So I think um, a couple of spaces, I know the second part of that question was, you know, verticals that we focus on more than others. I think there's a couple of spaces that we've consistently invested in since FICA one. So that's been, you know, B2B issuance and financial management. Uh, we've done a lot of white label infrastructure, um, quite a few verticalized B2B to C solutions. Uh, I think on, on my end, I'm probably spending the most time lately in broadly payments and embedded finance. Um, but really, you know, at the end of the day, we are looking for exceptional teams to partner with um, because that's really what we're investing in. And I think that's what we're most drawn to when we're making an investment decision. So last year, FICA announced its third fund of $160 million and an opportunity fund of $35 million. What's the secret of of its success? That's part one. And why did you wait an entire year to start capital deployment? I actually... I think it'll be helpful to get my perspective on this because I actually haven't been with with FICA since the very beginning. So I can kind of offer the outside and insider perspective of um, FICA's success. Um, So I I think what drew me to to join the fund 18 months ago um, and what I continue to kind of see internally as as a driver of our solid track record is our focus on being disciplined, being patient, and having a steady hand in our investment process. So I, you know, I kind of touched on this just now, but we really take time to get to know founding teams, to really understand um, their businesses, the highlights, what gets us excited, and also the shortcomings, right? Like what what are the things that we're going to have to work on with them and, and think about um, 
and you know the risks right of an investment so i think we go into making a decision you know eyes wide open um and i think that makes us a you know better investor um and a better partner down the road so we really pride ourselves on standing by our founders through the ups and the downs um like you know many funds do but we really want to make sure that they feel supported and that we are we are really good partners to them i think the, the one other thing is i i we have been very good about not chasing kind of frothy valuations and hype. Um, and I think that that honestly will pay off for us uh, in the long term. In terms of your your kind of second question, um, it, it is definitely related to that, these first points. Um, we didn't really want to rush through finishing up fund two. Um, we were lucky that, you know, our investors wanted to back us and put more money in for fund three. So we were able to close everything last summer, but we still had a few more slots uh, in fund two. And so we were again disciplined, patient, took a steady hand, and finished up those investments. And you know, it took us a year, but we got there. And now we're we're excited to to be deploying out of a fresh pool of capital. Was there ever a temptation to expand into Series B or beyond? Since you're doing so well already. Yeah, I I think we we go back to our roots, right? I think both of us were kind of very early stage founders that we started company from that zero to one phase, and that's what really excites and motivates us. So. I, I think we were trying to play to our strengths, but also ensure that we were excited about what we we're doing. So I, I think obviously there was a lot of temptation to increase AUM and sort of go later stage, but I, we, we decided decide not to deviate from our core focus and stick to what we knew best. Makes sense. And I know you you kind of answered this from an entrepreneur's perspective, but talking from an LP's perspective, what sets FICA apart from other funds that they might invest in? Yeah, I guess as a former consultant, I, I joke, I like to think in threes. <laughs> so uh, I, I think my, my team sort of doesn't allow me to say this publicly. So maybe this is the last time I'll mention this. Uh, but at, at FICA, we, we truly provide a 24-7 service to our founders where we're if, if available to help with everything from moral support over coffee when you lose a large customer the rushing down to meet a potential candidate on your behalf to help close them, uh, even some sometimes over the weekends. Um, and all, all this being said, I, I think a lot of LPs, as they speak to our founders, I think a lot of our founders have echoed this message and it's been very consistent and that's what really makes us stand out. So that's the first. I, I think the, the second, it's a fundamental belief that you as a founder should run your business. And this stems from us being former entrepreneurs again. And we know that the best way to support founders is not to instruct them, but to treat them as peers and try to support them as an extension of their management team. So whether it's potential founders who want to work with us or LPs as they do interviews with our existing founders, I think we forge a very strong relationship that we're very complimentary. We're never trying to force them into decisions and, that's a, a very healthy relationship that we have. And it's, it's, it's a very subtle relationship, but I, I think the reason founders start companies is because they want to pursue their own vision and want the freedom um, to actually grow and learn their own way. So I think even though we try to guide them, I think um, this approach that we take uh, has worked in our favor. And I, I think one thing that we love to do when a prospective founder is considering working with Vika, we give them a complete list of founders that we've invested in the past and let them pick whoever they want to speak to, as we're very confident that it's a enriching and consistent experience that they will have with the Vika team. 
And maybe the, the third thing that uh, I, I'll highlight is that most of our team members grew up in very humble beginnings. So we really value LPs and trusting us with their money. Uh, what this translates to is that we never make flippant investment decisions on a whim. We're always very transparent about the good and bad well in advance so LPs know what's going on in our portfolio. And I, I think we try our very, very best not to lose a single cent, almost to a fault. I think while losses in venture capital are definitely part of the process, given the risk we're taking, I think most of our LPs appreciate our stewardship of capital. I know my next question is kind of difficult because it's almost like picking a favorite child. But are there certain portfolio companies or recent investments that really excite you? I'll hop in first and, and then let TX give a chance to answer. But um, so late spring, early summer of this past year, we invested in a company called Fair Street. Um, and they're a startup Medicare agency that's helping top independent insurance ag- agents better sell to and serve their customers um, and ultimately grow grow their Medicare business faster. So I have to say, I mean, I, I'm also very drawn to really strong female founder duos as a uh, you know woman myself. But I think from first meeting Sarah and Tori, I knew they were you know founders that we we had to invest in, and and this was a company we had to back. Um, and they were rock. They're a rock star duo. Um, p- former PM and engineer. They had this incredible co-founder chemistry. They both had the right health tech experience, and they were so passionate about Medicare. Which I don't know many people who <laughs> aren't that passionate about Medicare, but it was it was contagious. And I think um, you know continually all of our interactions, all of our updates. I just get more and more excited about what they're working on and and the kind of opportunity that they're going after. Um, it's a huge market. It's growing, you know, every day as I think the stats like over 11,000 uh, Americans turn 65 daily and Medicare is only getting more complex. And, you know, I personally dread the day that I have to like make these decisions myself. And so the fact that they're better equipping these agents to, you know, help who I'm going to be in however many years from now, I think that's awesome. And, and I really love that kind of social impact element too. Yeah, and maybe on, on my end, I'm pretty excited about a company we invested in a couple months ago called Payably, uh, which is a payments platform that allows any company to monetize the payments they're processing. So think of a property management company, think of a large kind of um, two-sided marketplace. They all could use Payably to uh, monetize these transactions that they are processing. But I think what really sort of drew me to the company, back to the theme of backing what's non-obvious, both of the founders of Payably didn't come from Silicon Valley of any of the top schools. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I I think what we saw was Will's deep understanding of the payment industry, having been a veteran in that space for over 20 years, and uh, Joe, his co-founder's ability to relate to the end customer, we, we saw him work wonders through customer sales calls through his many years of leading large sales teams. So collectively, we thought this was an amazing team that was very complimentary. And the solution, in our opinion, was a no-brainer for customers. You're not charging customers for the platform and offering them a way to monetize and improve their bottom line. So I, I think we felt that with a team in place and, a, and an amazing opportunity, there was an easy sell. Uh, it got us very excited about the investment. So the fund is growing. You have these cool companies that you invested in. My next question is kind of natural from that. Are you hiring? If yes, what is that you look for in potential colleagues? So um, I actually 
helped with our hiring process earlier this year. Um, but we, we are not actually hiring right now. Um, so we, we brought on two new senior associates over the summer. Um, one of them is actually a Wharton grad. So, um, I don't, I don't know your school mascot, but go <laughs> Wharton, uh, school mascot. But, uh, I think as we continue to kind of grow the portfolio and AUM, um, there's going to be more opportunities because naturally we're going to need more, more people on the, on the team to evaluate all the investment opportunities and also so better support our portfolio companies. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I, I can answer the second part of the question in terms of what we look for in potential candidates. Cause I think, um, that tends to, you know, remain the, the consistent and, and there are definitely particular, you know, traits that we're kind of drawn to as a team. So. Obviously, there there are some fundamentals. Um, one might call them for for this job, um, for doing for being in VC. Um, I think you you kind of have to be a self starter. You have those strong interpersonal skills. You're a clear communicator. Um, but I think we're particularly excited by drawn to candidates who are extremely curious, who are intellectually honest, who have you know no ego. and who are honestly excited to bring their individual you know superpower, their strength. Um, to the table and, and support our team internally, but also our founders, um, and really lean into that, uh, that superpower that they're, you know, excited about that they bring. For the next segment of questions, I would love to get your expert in like insights into the fintech ecosystem. So one, one trend that I've noticed happening is that there's an increasing role and importance of crypto and DeFi within the fintech ecosystem. Do you feel that? The evolution of crypto will be such that it'll it'll penetrate every aspect of fintech from insure tech to payments to lending. Or do you think that that point is still quite far out and we are not certain of it yet? Yeah, maybe I'll jump in and take this one. So maybe at at least our humble opinion and a huge caveat that we're still learning ourselves. uh, That I, I do think crypto will touch all aspects of fintech. But the distinction is that whether it'll be a core infrastructure component for every aspect of fintech will take time. So to break this down, I I think crypto definitely has a lot of important use cases. So I'll name a couple. So they could remove any transactional friction across many different areas of fintech, such as cross-border payments, levering tokens, where we now can hedge against uh, currency fluctuations to acting as a ledger to streamline the transfer ownership of financial assets. So right now, like if you're buying a property, it takes very long for you to close escrow. But I think with crypto, we can streamline that process. I think on the other hand, the the world of fintech is very tightly governed and rightfully so. So I, th- I think a couple of things that crypto promotes, which is the anonymity and decentralization contradicts what is required in today's world. So that might change in the future, but I think for now, a humble viewpoint is that traditional processes like KYC and transaction monitoring will continue to be the default as opposed to relying on crypto platforms to be the backbone for financial governance. Kind of follow up to that is that, do you feel there are certain segments within fintech that you are in general bearish on? You feel that they are past their prime and certain segments that you feel are going to really drive the growth in the next three to five years. TX, you want to cover what we're bearish on and I can, I can <laughs> okay. cover what we're, okay. what we're excited course, about. Course, I'll give you the harder course. one. Of course. Okay. <laughs> maybe, 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 I'll, maybe we'll start from a more pessimistic viewpoint and become more optimistic as, as we continue talking. But uh, I, I think a couple of segments that we are cautious, I, I think bearish is probably too strong a word because I think in venture capital, keeping an open mind is very important. 
But uh, I, I think two categories that we are slightly more cautious and will sort of in the short term continue to avoid uh, pure play, consumer-focused distribution platforms, financial products, that's one. And second, buy now, pay later services. So maybe maybe I'll just elaborate on sort of both of them and why we decided that it's not a priority for now. So back in the day, I think the initial wave of FinTech 1.0 was definitely all about improving the way consumers access financial products through better digitally native purchasing experiences. And that was very, very important. But we think that today the space is now very saturated. Uh, There are very few financial products that you can buy online. And the second thing is that customer acquisition costs are really challenged at scale which is why we're trying to avoid pure play distribution platforms without any data or underwriting advantage. And the the second space is buy now, pay later. It's definitely been a very hot space over the last couple of years. And while we've looked at a number of solutions, each with their own flavor of differentiation, we have concerns that the consumer cohorts are still fairly young. And I don't think we have enough data, given they are still pretty immature around credit losses and default rates, especially in the environment that we're entering into, which is higher interest rates and potentially a recession. So we think that there will be winners in the space. But right now, I think there's limited evidence to determine who those might be. So I think our default is to avoid any investments in the space till the evidence becomes slightly clearer. So I think on the on the flip side, I guess on the, the more positive side, um, I think a, a couple of things that we're keen on right now um, are, and I, I mentioned this earlier because I've been spending quite a bit of time there, is uh, you know broadly payments and, and embedded finance. So I think one air or one trend space that we've been tracking quite a bit is um, you know given the rise of open banking and ACH payments, we think there's quite an interesting opportunity to create a more favorable structure um, on the payment side for merchants. And, and this is uh, very challenging, obviously, because um, you know, there are players who've tried to come in and use open banking or a closed-loop payments network to um, you know, offer that. And, and we've, seen a couple of, we've seen a couple of those um, come and go. I think also you need massive buy-in on both the consumer and the merchant side to make an ecosystem like this work, right? Where you're removing um, the high credit card fees that um, and transaction fees and processing fees that that, mer- that merchants are hit by right now. But I think we're pretty excited about finding a team and and you know a business model and a and a you know go to market strategy that can kind of um, come in and, and disrupt the payment space because I think there's there is an opportunity here. Um, and we've been we've been closely tracking this space and kind of waiting waiting to make a bet there. I, I don't know if this is a this is not necessarily a category within fintech that we've been tracking but i think a theme that we're excited about is credit unions and community banks as a distribution channel um you know these financial institutions have a very very loyal and engaged community uh, customer base um and i think it's been interesting for us to see a number of companies that are actually pretty much exclusively focused on just selling financial products for both consumers and smbs um, through credit unions and community banks and have a much higher level of engagement going that channel. So I think those are those are two things that we're we're pretty keen on right now. For the final segment of questions, what I like to do is have a rapid fire session where I introduce you as a person, as an individual to the listeners. My first question for both of you is that what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? 
Yeah. Uh, again, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start. So, uh, I used to train five to six days a week and try to play badminton professionally back in Singapore. But I, I think I was very fortunate. I was never good enough to turn pro. So that saved me from pursuing a disastrous career. And I, I think allowed me to pursue what I'm doing today. Uh, so my, mine's kind of a, I don't know if it's just like fun, but it, it's, it's kind of relevant because this actually happened again last night. But um, so I fingerprint scanners actually don't work for me because I've burned so my hands and my fingertips so many times cooking, which happened again last night, that my fingerprints have now become unrecognizable. And when I try to use clear at the airport, um, I get nothing. So uh, maybe I maybe I need a new career as like a jewelry thief or something like that. <laughs> my next question is specifically for TX. If you could go back in time 15 years, what advice would you give to your younger TX? Yeah, I, I think ultimately, and we try to remind ourselves this, that investing, it's all about the people running the companies. And I think in my earlier days, I tried to focus too much on just the business diligence. And not to say that's not important, but I think your North Star should always be kind of thinking about the founders running the company. And um, my biggest regret is three of my close business school friends are now running unicorn companies, all in fintech, and I, I didn't invest in any of them. So if I could, if I could go back and sort of tell my my younger self that sort of venture investing is a lot about the people, I think that would be the best advice. Uh, for Gabriella, I want to ask is that what advice would you give to young graduates who want to work in venture capital? Do you recommend gaining operating experience first or pursuing a role in VC? That's a that's a good question. So um, I guess in terms of the advice, um, and maybe this is like broad career advice, and granted, I'm still young relatively, so I, I won't say that this is uh, based on years of career experience. But I think um, one thing that I've found to be helpful myself is identifying that kind of superpower that you have and bringing that to you know every team that you work with. And finding a team that values that superpower and that wants to support you in, you know, refining it and making making that stronger. Um, in terms of your your second question around operating experience, I think it's hard for me to completely recommend that like you need to have operating experience in order to be successful in this job. And and um, I, I think with the exception of you know my my experience on the nonprofit side, which is I think a different flavor of operating experience. I took the traditional kind of investment route, right? Consultant to getting my foot in the door into into venture, into more of a multi-stage context, and then finding my home now at at, uh, FICA, focusing exclusively on seed stage. I think you can be a strong investor with or without that experience. Uh, I think it's just leaning into the experiences that you have and, and what you can bring to the table. And that's honestly going to make you the best partner is, is, you know, figuring out what I, I guess superpower you have, right. To, to support, you know, portfolio companies and to make those, those investment decisions. My last question is for the both of you. If money was not a constraint, what would you be doing? I'll jump in first and then I'll, I'll give it to TX to, to close us out here. But, um, so I think I love being in venture. I love the energy that comes from the day to day. I sometimes come off calls like so amped that I'm like, how can I, how can I invest in this company today? Right. Um, and I, I think I get really drawn in and excited by that. Um, I think honestly, I'd actually probably want to spend more time working in the nonprofit world, um, specifically on initiatives that broaden access to education and, you know, the broad sort of educational experiences that, that kids, um, should have today. Um, so I think I'd probably spend more time there. Yeah, I think I, I think for me, my my team knows I'm a workaholic, and I, I love 
I love what I do. So I think I would do the exact same thing, sort of being very engaged with founders. But I, I think maybe we're slightly less structured. So what I mean by that, I, I think now at, at Fika, and rightfully so, we're an institutional fund. So we have to lead a certain number of deals. There's a minimum check size that we have. Uh, we target a certain number of deals a year. So I think just removing some of those constraints, uh, that will be fairly interesting, but I would do the exact same thing. On that note, I'll let you both get back to work. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Daran. Thank it's our pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Vault in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Thank you.